Welcome to the FaithBridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by Senior Pastor Ken Warline and was recorded on Easter 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on Sunday on campus at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. and come say hi in person. You can also follow us on Instagram at FaithBridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you can join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org slash live. Here's Ken. Well, happy Easter, everybody. So glad that you're here. Happy Easter in this room, in the East Room, in the chapel, online, however it is that you're here. We're really glad that you're here for Easter. So turn in your Bibles in the New Testament to the book of John. And if you need a Bible, our ushers uh, in the rooms on our campus are passing them out. You can always just open up your phone and Google John 20 and it'll pop right up that way as well. While you're turning to John chapter 20, I'll tell you about a friend of mine called Frank. Frank came here uh, some years ago. And I remember after maybe his third or his fourth visit, he pulled me aside and he said, uh, I need to tell you something. I said, okay. He said, I don't believe any of this. I'm like, oh, okay. I said, well, why are you here? He says, because of her. Happy wife, happy life. And I said, yeah, okay, I got it. He said, but I just, well, I just kind of wanted to put on record that I don't believe any of this stuff, but I am going to be here, and I just don't want anybody to think I'm a hypocrite. I said, okay, well, I really appreciate your honesty about that. The reason I mentioned Frank is because I suspect on a weekend like this that there's, I don't know, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of you who are here today, not so much because you believe any of this, but because you're making somebody happy. In their behalf, I'll say thank you for doing that today. But as long as you're here, I hope that what we talk about might be a little bit interesting to you. Not just because there's plenty of skeptics here on campus, but also because of the character that we're going to look at in God's word today, who was quite the skeptic as well. Before I tell you about him, let's just back up and remind ourselves what was going on leading up to the first Easter Resurrection Sunday. Jesus at the end of three years of ministry, the crowds that follow him now number well into the thousands, sometimes uh, hundreds, sometimes into the thousands. Everybody in that region knew who this was, this miracle worker, this healer, this teacher. And his popularity had grown to such heights that the, that the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees and the Sadducees could stand it no longer. They despised the fact that he was commanding all of the spotlight and taking the glory away from them. They decided, we've got to get rid of this guy. And so following Palm Sunday, when he had marched it or been paraded in as he was riding on a, on a mule, as he had paraded in and they'd waved palm branches yelling, blessed is he who comes to the name of the Lord in five short days. He has plummeted from palm branch popularity to parading through the streets of Jerusalem, bloodied and beaten and carrying a cross on his shoulders. Why? Because the Jewish leaders had stirred the crowd up with some shenanigans and turned many against him. And so he goes through the mockery of a trial and finally they take him to the outskirts of Jerusalem lay him down on a cross, nail him to that cross and stand the cross upright where he would die the death 
of suffocation. That's what crucifixion really was because when you're hanging there, you can't support your rib cage. And finally, you breathe your last. It was a terrible, torturesome way of killing someone. When he died, it's not the only thing that died. Hope in the hearts of his followers who'd stuck with him died as well. They were confused and perplexed and wondering, how did this happen? One minute we were waving palm branches and and now he's dead. And they can't figure out what in the world is going on because they're like, wait a second, was he not really the Messiah? Was he not really the Savior? Because if he's really the Savior, he can't be dead because the Savior's not going to die. And if he's not really the Savior, wouldn't that mean that we've just wasted the last three years of our life following him? Because it was nearly dark on Friday when he died. And Friday at sundown is when the Sabbath would begin for the Jewish people. And you couldn't work from sundown on Friday to sun up on Sunday. You couldn't do any working on the Sabbath. Burying somebody would be work. So several pulled his, uh, pulled his body off the cross and got him hastily buried before the sun had set. Move forward to... Sunday morning, sun up, several of his friends decided we'll go back to the tomb and, and do some of what we wished we could have done, bringing spices and all, perhaps like we take flowers sometimes to a cemetery. But something there happens that shocks them, rocks their world, sends them running back, proclaiming, he's not there, he's risen, he's alive. Several hours later, in a different location on the west side of Jerusalem, on a road to Emmaus, the resurrected Jesus appears to several others. One's name was Cleopas. We don't know who the other one was, maybe Cleopas' wife or a friend. But he appears to them and journeys with them and even eats with them. And they, when they realize what's going on, they run back in Jerusalem. They're like, they're, they're like you're not going to believe this. But Jesus is alive. He's risen. And then on the same day, that first resurrection Sunday, several hours after that, in the evening, he appeared to 10 of his apostles. Why 10? Because, well, one, Judas was already dead he had taken his own life that leaves one other and he wasn't there that evening and he's the one I want us to focus upon so let's look at John chapter 20 and we'll go to start in verse 24 now Thomas that's his name also known as Didymus one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came sometime later The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. Now, that really begs a question that you need to stop and ask. Okay, Thomas, why weren't you with the other disciples that evening? We don't know that. I mean, maybe he'd lost interest, but I doubt it. After three years of investment overnight, I don't don't imagine. Was he under the weather and he's just feeling a little sick? I'd say that's doubtful as well. I've had to imagine that hope just died extra hard in his heart. 
And maybe he was just wired with a little bit more introversion. And maybe he said to the guys, guys, I, I just can't, I, I got to be alone tonight. I can't do it. I'm going to pass on the gathering tonight. Sometimes those of us who are a little bit more introverted, we do better processing deep feelings on our own without a lot, a, a lot, a lot of loud people around us. And so that would certainly be understandable if that's why he wasn't there. But it's a shame that he wasn't because he missed the high point moment of their three years of following him, his first resurrection appearance to the original apostles. So why was Thomas missing the whole thing? I think this much we can say for certain. He was naturally skeptical. That's the first thing. You see, they gathered and they, they told him. They said, you, you wouldn't possibly believe what happened. And he listened and he said, no, I don't possibly believe that. They're like, no, 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 but really, it happened. And, and we saw him. And he's like, you know what? Maybe with arms folded and shaking. He says, I believe that you believe what you're telling me, but I just can't believe that. And I'm not going to believe it until I can see it for myself. Now, we know Thomas was skeptical, not just from this passage, but from another passage or two as well, because John gives us several snapshots of, John's, uh, of Thomas's life. You see it in John chapter 14, which I won't share, but I will share John 11. Do you remember the story of when Jesus says to his disciples, we're going to go to Bethany. Bethany was just on the outskirts of Jerusalem. They're like, okay, why are we going to Bethany? Because my friend Lazarus has died. And he was going to resurrect him. And so you picture all of the disciples saying, all right, bags are packed. Let's go to Bethany. Except for Thomas. That wasn't his response. Look what Tom, Thomas says in verse 16 of chapter 11. He's like, okay, let us go also that we may die with him. Why was he so pessimistic? Well, perhaps Thomas just had the foresight to realize Bethany's very close to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where all of the leaders of Judaism are and they hate Jesus. This is not going to turn out well. And he wasn't wrong about that. So this is, this is just kind of how Thomas's mind worked. He was a little bit of a natural skeptic, maybe a little bit pessimistic. And so he tells the, the disciples, hey, I'm glad you believe that you've seen the resurrected Lord. I'm not going to believe it until I see it myself. Look at what he says in verse 25b. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side where the spear had gone, I'll not believe. His skepticism reminds me of another man who was a well-known journalist for the Chicago Tribune several decades ago. And, but he was very, very skeptical himself, and he was very, very atheistic. And so he was convinced Christianity is a silly sort of thing. There's no intellectual foundation whatsoever for the Christian faith. And he set out to prove it 
on a journalistic exercise, flying all around the country, interviewing psychologists, interviewing scholars, interviewing historians, interviewing medical doctors. Why? Because he figured if I can puncture the resurrection, all the air of Christianity comes out. Because if Jesus died purportedly for the sins of humanity and he stayed dead, he's no savior at all. He would just be a teacher that died like all of the others. He wasn't wrong about that. In fact, Apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. So Lee Strobel, he set out uh, to undo Christianity. But he couldn't get past this question. It just kept recurring. And he couldn't get an honest answer for how do you explain his original apostles and other believers who had stayed with Jesus, who went from the night Jesus was killed, being cowardly mice who'd fled into the dark and, and hunkered down behind locked doors. And then after Sunday, they come marching out full of courage, ready to proclaim a message of triumph and, and victory. He says, how do you explain that? Transformation. Finally, one of his friends said, Lee Strobel, you just don't want to see the evidence. In other words, you claim to be an intellect, but you're not being intellectually honest with yourself in your pursuit of truth. And it's a cop-out to just say, I'm an intellect, and so therefore I'm not a person of faith to keep your mind closed to really investigating the claims of the faith. Strobel was a skeptic, and so was Thomas. But Thomas wasn't cynical. And you need to know there's a difference between skepticism and cynicism. The skeptic says, I have a question. It's a real question. The cynic assumes the answers already. Skeptics say, I don't believe this could possibly be true, but I will investigate it for myself. The cynic says, this could not possibly be true, and so I'm going to ridicule it and put it down without any investigation whatsoever. Cynics hide behind their sarcastic jabs rather than engaging their minds. Skeptics, on the other hand, are intellectually honest because they're searching for truth. I'm afraid that a lot more people these days who claim to be skeptics are really cynics. They're not really engaging their minds thoughtfully. And you see it uh, never more consistently than in the media. And the thing that concerns me is that a country cannot last very long if the whole country's population is filled with cynicism. And this is a problem. So if you're skeptical about things of faith, again, glad that you're here, but let me ask you, are you a skeptic or are you a cynic? Do you ridicule the faith and you don't really ever give it any thought? You haven't read anything really hearty about it? Or are you open to investigating the claims of the faith and putting a little intellectual heft 
into it. That would be my challenge. That's what Thomas did. And we know that he put that energy in because of where he went next. The next time he spotted, one week later, where was he? He was back in the upper room with those other 10 apostles. Why was he there? His calculus was, if what these guys are saying is true, and Christ really has been raised, then it would make all the sense in the world that he would appear again, most likely to his most intimate apostles, in the upper room. And so he positions himself to find the truth out. And you got to admire that about Thomas. You also have to love that Jesus was willing to meet Thomas where he needed to be met. That's the second observation. Thomas was skeptical, but Jesus was willing. He was willing to meet Thomas where he needed to be met. Look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then he looks and says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Now, why did he offer these gestures of touch to Thomas? Because he knew that's exactly the ultimatum that you laid down, which when you think about it, had to have shocked Thomas because in the moment that Jesus said that to him, Thomas must have calculated himself, wait a second, you weren't here to hear me say that unless you heard me say that because you were here the whole time, even when we couldn't see you, listening patiently to me blather on. To which I suspect Jesus looked in Thomas's eyes and said, mm -hmm. you got it, now you're connecting the dots. And why did Jesus go to such lengths to reveal himself in resurrected form to Thomas here, to Peter in another scene, to James, his half-brother, we read about in that book, to Cleopas on the road to Emmaus and, 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 uh, and others uh, along the way, like Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And Paul says as many as 500 and more in 1 Corinthians 15. Why did Jesus go to such lengths to appear in resurrected form to these apostles? For the same reason that he even made sure to eat with them in several accounts. You see this in Luke, in his uh, version of this first meeting that happened, not the second meeting on the next Sunday, but the first Sunday when he gathered. He says to the apostles, he says, do you have something to eat? Why did he say, do you have something to eat? Be not perhaps because he was really that hungry, but because he knew that they thought, we're seeing a phantom. That's the word in the Greek, it means ghost. They thought, you're a ghost, we're seeing a ghost. So Jesus says, do you have anything to eat? And they're like, here, and some broiled fish. And they watch him chew the fish, and they watch him swallow the fish, and you know they're waiting for the fish to go clunk, <laughs> right down onto the floor, and it doesn't. It just goes into him, and they're having to conclude, you're not a phantom. You really are here. Mm -hmm. 
I'm raised to life. They were looking at the real Jesus in resurrected form. So again, why did he go all the trouble to appear to all these people and to eat with any number of them as well? Because he knew, Jesus knew, that if you don't know that you know that you know, if you're not sure that you're sure that you're sure that I really did conquer death and the grave, the message of what I came and the mission that I fulfilled to accomplish here on earth will never get past the first generation. Because if you don't know that you know that you know, if you're not sure that you're sure that you're sure, the moment that they arrest you, and they're going to, he's thinking, and they put you on a cross and start driving nails into your hands, the moment that they uh, tie you to a stake and set that stake on fire, the moment that some years later, they unleash lions upon you in the Colosseum and tauntingly say, you still believe so much in Jesus? You'll fold quick in a lawn chair in summer. You'll recant, you'll pull back, you'll say, no, 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 that's not true, it's not true, it's a made-up story. Jesus understood. If this message of hope is going to be perpetuated, you people are going to have to know that you, ha- that you know that you know because you're going to go through hell here on earth to continue getting the message out to future generations. And yet, they never caved. Though I shared recently uh, this, uh, it bears repeating because many of you weren't here that day, but there was this guy who was called, whose name was uh, Chuck Colson. And he was President Nixon's hatchet man a little more than 50 years ago in the Watergate scandal. And, <clears throat> and after the whole scandal broke and the truth came out, Colson had to go to prison and serve time there for his involvement in it. But as his world was crumbling in upon him, someone introduced Chuck Colson to Jesus Christ and explained, you can have a savior who will come to live inside of you and put his Holy Spirit in you and he'll forgive you for your past and he'll give you hope for your future, and he'll journey with you in your presence, present, and giving you peace that surpasses all understanding. And Colson put his trust into Christ, and he became a very well-known, articulate Christian speaker and author and leader for the rest of his days. And some years later, people asked, Colson, why, did you, why do you believe in the resurrection 50 or, or 2,000 years after the resurrection happened? And Colson said, oh, that's easy. The reason I can believe in that is because there's no other logical explanation as to how those early Christians would have willingly endured 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 years and more of all the persecution that was coming their way that most typically ended in painful deaths of martyrdom unless they knew this is really true. He says, and the reason that I know that that is the case is because of Watergate. He says, I was one of the 10 
most powerful men in the whole United States, integral in planning one of the greatest cover-ups in American history. And yet just the 10 of us who were on the inside, we couldn't stick with our lie longer than two weeks before the shell started cracking and guys started fessing up to save themselves some pain and punishment because pain and punishment has a way of fleshing out the truth. But the early Christians, they never cracked they never caved. To the contrary, they went to the, to the death willingly saying, you know, if we must die, we'll still live. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. We'll be with him. And so they died, some of them with a song on their lips. And, and it astounded the onlookers. How can they have this confidence and this faith and this peace? It's because they knew that they knew that they knew. Christ has conquered death and we who are tethered to him by faith so shall we this is why it was so important for Jesus to make very clear to these early Christians for weeks after the resurrection that he really really was alive and one of those even though a late arriver a week late was Thomas. He stepped in at that point. After getting to see Jesus, having his ultimatum called on him, once he'd seen the risen Christ for himself, Thomas went all in and he became a believer as well. And I say all in, that's the third thing, by the way, if you're taking notes. He became a believer and he went all in for Jesus. And the reason that we know that he went all in is because of what he says to Jesus. After Jesus says, go ahead, you can touch. I know that's what you've been wanting. I've been listening. Thomas, you just picture dropping to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Now this is a, a, a key verse because people who studied uh, the, the gospel of John point out the ark of the narrative, the art of the whole story that he's telling us, John is, about Jesus having been one of the apostles and, and journeying with Jesus, it builds to this verse right here. This is the climactic verse of the whole book. Why is this the climax? Because in this short verse, Thomas, aka Doubting Thomas, makes the greatest and clearest declaration of faith that you see in the whole story when he says, you are Lord and you are God. Bam! Yes, you've got it, Thomas. That's what John was wanting to make sure. Now, I say it's also key. He went all in, and you know he went on all in, especially when he chose the word Lord. That's the word kurios. The word God is theos in Greek. But it's particularly interesting that he chose kurios, your Lord and your God. Why? Here's why. Because the Roman government, they didn't care what people believed in. Now, in Israel, the Jewish leaders, they cared very much. They weren't going to have any Christianity. But in the larger Roman Mediterranean Roman world, the Roman authorities, they didn't care. They're like, if you want to be a Christian, be a Christian. Follow Jesus. If you want to be Buddhist, be Buddhist. If you're Jewish, be Jewish. If you're Hindu, be Hindu. And all of those existed back then. And the Romans, they said, we don't care. As long as as you will say the Pledge of Allegiance. 
What's the Pledge of Allegiance? Two words that you had to say to be a Roman citizen in good standing. You had to say, Curios Kaiser. What did it mean? Caesar is Lord. Why did they insist on that? It's very clever. Because what they were ostensibly saying is, is you have religious freedom. You can worship whoever you want to worship. As long as at the end of the day, you still look towards the Caesar and you say, Caesar is Lord. That's how they allowed plurality while still throwing the lasso around the whole empire and keeping unity around the Roman government centralized around the Caesar. But the Christian couldn't say Kyrios Kaiser. The Christian says, no, Kaiser's not, Caesar's not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. Because there's never been a Caesar who came along who was able to live a life of sinless perfection like we can't live. There's never been a Caesar who came along who, who willingly stepped in as our replacement, as our substitute, and took a death of punishment that we deserved. And there's never been a Caesar that conquered the grave and came back after they buried him. Now you can see all the Caesars that died and there's always the next one. But they never conquered the grave. But Jesus, he did all of those things. Which means Jesus is Lord because you don't get to be Lord at all unless you're Lord of all, unless you're Lord over all, including death. And that's why the Christians would be killed. Because technically it was for insubordination. And yet they went through this willingly because they're like, well, we know that we know that we know. The Caesar is not the Lord. Jesus is the Lord. How do you know? Because we've seen him and we ate with him and we touched him and we talked with him. And so if you have to kill us, kill us. But it's all right. We know what happened to him. And we are linked to him through faith. We too shall rise. So how did Jesus respond? Now that Thomas has got it, Lord and God. Then Jesus, verse 29, told him, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Now, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Who are the those? That would be you and me who don't get the opportunity to see him in physical form and touch him and eat with him and these sorts of things. Heavy confession. I think the reason that I, I like the story of Thomas so very well, and the reason I'm so glad that John went out of his way to tell us this story about Thomas in a way that Matthew, Mark, and Luke never, never, never gave us any more than just his name in the list of the 12, is because I tend to be wired a little bit like Thomas myself. Anybody who works close to me knows I lean towards skepticism. And they would tell you, kin is nothing if not data-driven. I believe, but help my unbelief by giving me another spreadsheet or a graph. That will really help me. And if Suzanne were here, she would say, Annie leans a little bit towards pessimism sometimes. I say, it's realism, baby. It's not, she's like, well, it might be realism, but it's also pessimism, trust me. And I think that's why maybe I resonate with Thomas. And as I was working on this message, I felt like the Lord just kind of showed me maybe the reason that John went out of way, out of his way, 
to give us more detail about this disciple than Matthew, Mark, and Luke is because somehow John knew. There are probably going to be some people who come along who they just can't believe quite as quickly as we did the first time we saw him. But maybe if they could understand the process Thomas went through and the due diligence that he did, maybe that would help them come around the corner. And that's why I, I resonate with Thomas. In my role as a pastor over the years, I've got to see many people take a journey from skepticism to faith, including Frank, who I started off talking about. It didn't happen in a week. It didn't happen in a month. It didn't even happen in a year. It was several years. And most every Sunday, he'd be here with Bernadette, and they would uh, come out and say hi, and he'd throw a question at me. Well, have you thought about this? And, and, and he'd, uh, or sometimes he'd send me an uh, email, and he just knew he had the zinger that was going to knock me off uh, my, uh, dead center on my faith. And, and finally, he, 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 he was taking so much time and energy, I went down the hall to Pastor Dan, who was on our staff full-time then, and I said, could you take Frank off my hands for a while? I've got to get some other work done. And so Dan uh, spent a lot of time talking with Frank as well. But then finally, it was worth it. Finally, one day Frank realized, wait, if this, is, if this was true for Thomas, then it must be true for everyone. And if it's true for everyone, then it must be true for me. And just before the pandemic, Frank took a trip with Pastor Dan and others to the Holy Land, and he got baptized in the River Jordan. Yeah. And you know, he's not the only one. Lee Strobel, the author, the journalist that I talked to you about, oh, he became... Uh, a compelling uh, writer about in favor of the Christian faith. And he would write a book called The Case for Christ. He would write a book called The Case for the Resurrection. He wrote a number of, of books. And the irony was that he had set out to disprove Christianity and through it all, he realized there's no other explanation. He says this has to be true. It happened to Lee Strobel in I bet it's happened to some of you. But I wonder, where are you in this story as we come to a close today on Easter? And maybe some of you, you're like, you know, I'm actually ready. I had been thinking about these things, but what you said helped. I'm ready to put my trust in Christ. I want to become a follower. I want to have his Holy Spirit come into me and transform me. I want him to put his resurrection power into my life. And if that's you, in a moment, we're going to say a prayer. And you, can, you could step across that line of faith today as we pray. But perhaps some of you, probably many of you, say, well, I don't need to do that because actually I've trusted in Christ. I'm all in. I believe in Jesus. But let me ask you, are you really all in? And the reason that I'm asking this it's because I have a concern, and the concern is, is, is best summed up in this statement. If the devil can get you singled out, he'll get you picked off. What do I mean by that? I've been noticing something, uh, certainly in our part of the city, here in this 
very community, but in American Christianity in general. And that is something happened in the pandemic, in the aftermath of the pandemic. A lot of people learned how to do a lot of things by themselves. And so they didn't go back to this business. They didn't go to, you say, hey, I learned how to do it myself. Well, great. But that's a problem if believers are saying that, hey, you know, I don't really need it anymore. Because if the devil can get you singled out, he will get you picked off. And I've watched it happen with too many people. And so my challenge to you, especially since we've got so many of you back today, don't let this be the last time till Christmas. You need to be here. We're worshiping. You need to hear words of life every week. You need to be studying the word and being in a, in a grow group and in, or in a class and growing and using your gifts and being around the Christians. Because if you haven't noticed, the world is changing on us and it is unraveling. And if you're out there and you're not in here being fortified, heaven help you. But the good news is, if you did sort of slip away, even if you fell hard, there's grace for you. And even today, Christ says, I still love you, and I want you back. So you must step into that with a renewed faith. One third group before we pray, and that's those of you who said, I'm kind of skeptical. You say, maybe, hopefully, well, that was kind of interesting. You gave me some things to think about, but I'm not signing on the dotted line, if that's what you're wondering, and that's all right. Maybe some of you are like, I still don't really quite understand what difference would Christ make in my life, to which I would say, you know, you probably wouldn't know that sugar is sweet unless you tasted it. And, and you, have to, you have to allow his spirit to come in you to, to begin to experience the transformation that happens. I know that sometimes, especially skeptics, say, well, I, I don't want to be a Christian because there's, there's so many hypocrites out there. They say that they love the Lord, but I look at their lives, they live like hell. And I don't disagree with that. But look, if you hear somebody do a poor job of playing Beethoven, it doesn't mean that Beethoven was a poor composer. It just means you actually had to endure a bad version of it. Take your eyes off that person and put your eyes on the original, on Jesus, and find some people who are trying to walk in faithfulness and obedience to him. And not just doing lip service towards him. And so if you have a, a, a you, you just have a question or two. Maybe, you got, maybe you're even a little cynical and that's all right. I want to give you a, 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 an invitation as well. What's the invitation? We're going to do something we never did before. And I'll give credit to several on our staff who had the idea. I said, I, I love it. I would invite you to come and have breakfast with me. One of the next two Sundays. At the 9 o'clock service and the 11 o'clock service. I'm going to be offering a breakfast next Sunday called, uh, I think we're calling it Questions for Ken. Why don't you just bring your questions and let's talk about it. I'll do it on the next Sunday as well. Who will be in here preaching if I'm in someplace, some other room doing that? Uh, Clay Scroggins will preach next week and then Steve Carter will preach the following week. And, and so what I want you to do is I want you to come and let's have a conversation about it. I wish I could tell you that we had a you know, resort hotel buffet style breakfast. 
the budget wouldn't allow for that. But we'll have all the breakfast tacos that you could want and plenty of uh, other items as well. But mostly, I just want you to come. Even if you're a new believer and you're like, well, I've got some questions myself. Why did you come? Just go to faithbridge.org slash breakfast or capture the QR code on the screen right now and just let us know that you're going to come. And they'll send you an email and tell you, here's the, the room that we're going to be in. And, um, and I'll see you at one of the... And if, if, uh, if we hit capacity in one or more of the gatherings, that, that, that option will disappear from the menu, and, but you can still sign up for one of the others. But I'd love to just talk with you if you're willing to talk with me and engage your mind a little bit more. Hey, you've been so attentive, and I appreciate it. Uh, and I love you very much, Faith Bridge, and all the guests and, and all who are here as well. Happy Easter to you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, Thomas, especially on Easter, uh, because I just do have a sneaking suspicion there's any number of us who we're wired a little bit like him. Lord, I pray that no matter where we came in today, that you would move us a step closer and in our faith journey. I pray God for those that'll come and talk some more next week and look forward to the fun of that. And I pray for those who they've known you and, and loved you, but maybe their heart grew a little bit cold and maybe they got pulled away sort of like a charcoal set outside of the fire. Things cooled off and things got confusing. And Lord, I pray that this Easter could be a turnaround day that they might experience your love and your grace anew and that you'd fill their hearts with hope once again and that you would do a new thing and bring revival into the hearts of longtime believers because if our hearts aren't in revival, they're in recession. You're only going one way or the other. Lord, wouldn't you bring revival into all of our hearts? And if you're here and you need to make a decision because you never did make a decision for Jesus. Why don't you just right now, as I pray aloud, you just pray something like these words. Lord Jesus, I'm asking that you would come into my soul right now with your Holy Spirit. Come in, wash me clean, fill me full, forgive me of my sins and cleanse me of all unrighteousness. Point me in the direction that I need to go. Help me to hear the nudgings of your spirit saying, this is the way, walk in it. Teach me what it means to follow you as I grow further. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. 